You have a copy of God's Word before you. Please turn in it to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. And as you turn there, I just note again for those that may not be aware, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke. We are endeavoring to make our way verse by verse through it. We don't claim to deal with absolutely everything that possibly could be dealt with in every text that we come across, but we trust at the very least there's some enlightenment that is given as we take our time to look at the verse in this sequential way, look at the Word of God, recognizing that every Word of God is pure, and every text has a particular purpose in the mind of the Lord and for which it was given, is for us to learn and to discover. And so we come to Luke chapter 10 tonight, and again, many of you are aware already, but we have here the appointment of the 70 at the beginning of the chapter, and the words of Christ to prepare them for what they would face. Their return in verse 17 is where we were last Lord's Day evening, and they have great joy They have been amazed at the measure of fruitfulness they have witnessed, and so they're just filled with joy. This is the kind of joy we want, the kind of joy we crave, a joy that sees God working in such a fashion it's undeniable, and therefore we are brought to this elation as we see how Satan's kingdom is being destroyed very evidently. Of course, Christ then, he speaks in his wisdom, and he cautions them in verse 20, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And so we proceed into verse 21, and let us hear the word of God then from this text. Luke chapter 10, verse 21, In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank Thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that Thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in Thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Amen. Ending there at the end of verse 24. Let's, let's pray. Let's look to the Lord. Lord, we understand that your word is spiritually discerned. It's been an awful thing for me to come here imagining that I can, of my own inherent ability, understand and then expound thy word. So at this very moment, I remind myself and I pray openly that I need thy help. I pray for that help the promised help of the Spirit. Thou knowest what everyone is going through, what they're facing, the thoughts that right now are in their minds, the burdens that weigh upon their hearts, the challenges that they're facing, and even those things that they don't yet know they will face, but are just around the corner for them. And Whatever the need is, Thou art able to prepare us through Thy Word. And I pray then that there will be a real practical testimony as to the Word tonight. It's not just information, but it's preparing us and sanctifying us, making us more like Jesus. So give us Thy Spirit. Help us, Lord. May those that are yet dead in their sins be awakened. This is Thy work to do. Give help then in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of the repeated themes that you find in the early chapters of Luke's gospel, for those that can remember and look back that far, is, of course, the theme of joy. 
And we noted that when we were going through those early chapters, that there was this descent of joy that came with the arrival of the Messiah. Everyone seemed to be brought to this, this condition of, of praise and elation, happiness and gladness. For example, you have Elizabeth recording that John the Baptist leapt in her womb for joy. We are told that when Mary contemplated the favor of God to her, she said, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. We're told also that the angel said to the shepherds, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. I think if you go to Matthew as well, you'll find that the, those that saw the star rejoiced at that occasion as well. There's other language that expresses joy in those first couple of chapters, such as Simeon blessing God, Anna giving thanks, and, and so on. It's just filled with joy, praise, gladness at the arrival of Jesus Christ. There are other places where we note the joy of others, or at least the instruction in relation to joy concerning them, such as what we've learned in Luke chapter 6, when Jesus Christ prepares His people in relation to the experience of persecution. He tells them that those that are persecuted for His sake, He says, Rejoice ye in that day, and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now, just keep that in mind. If you're going through a time of persecution, and you're feeling the oppression of the enemy, either in some spiritual way against you or by his minions and by his servants and people who, who do the work of the enemy in oppressing the people of God, leap for joy. Leap for joy. Actually leap. I mean, you think of it. Leaping for joy. When you're persecuted for Christ's sake, we ought to keep that in mind when we think of it. And of course, it takes faith, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It's not just... This, this sense of obedience that, okay, I'm being persecuted, I'm going to leap in some kind of fake joy. No, no, it's, it's faith that goes beyond and says, wow, wow, because of this, great is my reward in heaven. And so therefore I leap for joy because I'm laying up treasures where moth and rust cannot corrupt and thieves cannot break through, through and steal. Last week, we noted the joy of the 70, as I've already indicated, at their first preaching campaign. They're sent out by the Lord Jesus Christ. Off they go. They, they don't really know what to expect. The Lord Jesus prepares them in a measure. And as we've noted already, they come back rejoicing. And Christ says, well, well don't rejoice just in the success of your ministry, but in the fact that your names are written in heaven. And I made the point last week, and I would assert that uh, the Lord Jesus isn't saying that when you see the pulling down of the kingdom of Satan when you see evidence, his power unleashed, and in the salvation of souls and the deliverance of men. He's not saying that we're to find no joy in that. That's not it at all. But, but don't let that be the preeminent joy. Don't, don't, don't be a slave just to that form of joy, that the only joy you can find, or the only joy that you ever experience is whenever something's going well, in your ministry and in your activity and in your testimony before a perishing world. Don't, don't let that be, because then your, your joy, and of course he doesn't go on to say exactly why, but, but I think there's, there's certain conclusions we can come to. Your joy will be up and down. It will always be dependent upon what you're seeing accomplished or not. And so it, it can fade, it ebb and flows, and it's, it's not the kind of joy that the believer is to have, a sustained joy in the Lord, which can be sustained when we find it, when we are sensing it, when we delight in the fact that our names are written in heaven. Of course, there are some forms of Christianity that would not permit you to understand the implications of such an expression as that. Certain forms of Christianity that are designed to keep people in bondage, always in doubt. The entire Roman Catholic system is one that, that brings people into a bondage where they are never sure and would argue that it is presumptive to be absolutely certain that you are going to heaven, that your name is written in heaven. Jesus Christ asserts in contradiction to Rome, you can know. Because again, if you can't know, how do you rejoice? The joy is in the fact that you know, you know your name is written in heaven. And to those doubting here tonight, to those lacking assurance, to those that may question whether or not you are the Lord's, 
Don't be content to stay there. Get to a position of assurance. Seek the Lord. Read His Word. Cry out for assurance, for the faith that enables you to come to a sense of assurance that Christ, having died and shed His blood and risen again from the grave, there is assurance to those that believe. Real assurance. That justification is such that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus then is, is, is emphasizing this. He's making it plain. You can rejoice. And that joy can be sustained. It can be continued. It can carry through when the joy of success and ministry will not always carry through consistently. This joy can. This joy will. Our text, however, in verse 21 transitions away from the joy of the 70 to the joy of Jesus Christ. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. In only one place in the entire New Testament do you have these words, and it's right here, Jesus rejoiced. Just as you have only once in the New Testament that Jesus wept. And you know, as I was thinking about that, as I was realizing this is only found once, Jesus rejoiced. And I immediately then thought, you know, only once Jesus wept. I then went and looked in John 11 where you find that. And, and once again, you're brought face to face with a context of prayer. And so before we go anywhere tonight, I, I think it's, it's good just to muse on what is, it seems to be drawn from that, that, that Jesus Christ, when He wept, he, he moves into prayer. When He rejoiced, he moves into prayer. And I thought across the entire spectrum of human experience, when we're weeping and when we're rejoicing, it's always in season to pray. Always. Oh yes, whenever we weep, it would be remiss of us not to shed those tears before the Lord, before our Father, which is in heaven. We could shed those tears on our own in private. We can shed those tears before friends and family, but it is remiss not to shed them before the presence of our Father who cares. And likewise it is for joy. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced. He rejoiced. Times of sorrow and times of joy equally ought to be married with prayer. So tonight, as we look at verses 21 and 22, with the Lord's help, I've entitled the message, A Unique Revelation of Christ's Joy. A Unique Revelation of Christ's Joy. And I say unique because, as I've already noted, this is the only place where you have such an expression as this. And of course, in, in addition to that, he says some amazing things. And I trust the Lord will help us as we look at this text. First of all, how Jesus rejoiced. How Jesus rejoiced. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit. Just before we look at our Lord Jesus, we have to step back and recognize that the experience of joy is not uniform across all men and women and boys and girls. And we have a tendency, of course, to try and defend our own inclinations. I've made reference to this before, but it bears repeating, and we all need to kind of process it and learn and, and get the hold of it, because there is that tendency to defend our natural inclinations. And so the sober-minded would want those who, who tend to be less sober-minded to be more sober-minded. Why aren't you more sober-minded? And it's the right thing to think about. People ought to be sober-minded. But so it is with the melancholy, with those that tend to have a melancholy frame of mind, and that they will want to defend it. But there's no place, there's no defense of it. In fact, misery, melancholy, is... is, is to some degree, one of those sins of the church that seldom gets addressed. At least melancholy that doesn't uh, move into the realm of murmuring and complaining. The kind of misery that goes into complaining will get addressed, I imagine, in any decent church and where the Word of God is proclaimed. But, but just addressing the whole sense of being melancholy is, is not always something that is addressed as a sin. But it is. It is not right to have a constant frame of being discouraged, downcast, mournful, melancholy. It's, it's, not, it's not right. 
Now there are times to sorrow, absolutely. Our Lord Jesus, yes, He wept in John 11. And we know at other times He wept over Jerusalem. He wept in Gethsemane. These are occasions we know where He wept, but He was also a man of joy. And we have it here expressed. Jesus rejoiced. And even if Scripture did not express it so plainly as we have in this text, we could assume it. We could assume that Jesus is not just a man of sorrows, but He is a man of of joy. How do we make that assumption? John 3.34 tells us that God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. That is, he has an unhindered infilling of the Spirit of God upon his life. And then when we study the Spirit of God, when we see what the Bible tells us comes with the Spirit, what the Spirit brings to the life, we go to Galatians chapter 5, we see love, joy, joy. So I say to you, we could assume that Jesus Christ was a joyful man simply by the fact that the Spirit is upon him without measure and by the the ministry of the Spirit to his humanity, there would be expression of joy in his life. We would conclude that he was a man of joy. But here it's stated plainly, plainly, so we don't have to debate it, we don't have to argue What is interesting here is we're told in that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit. And the translators of our authorized version, they keep the small letter for spirit. And the, the, the possibility there is that this is just within his inner man. He rejoices within his inner man. But, but I think, as many of the commentators note, that it's rightful. And they, the, the translators are being careful. They, they often are careful. But it's not absolutely explicitly pointing to the Holy Spirit. Then don't make that Assumption. Don't put that into the text. But I think there's good reason here to see that Jesus Christ actually is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit, in the Spirit of God. And of course, I can make that by the fact that in His humanity, He is being born by the Spirit. That that which He expresses is the ministry of the Spirit through His humanity. And so if He's going to rejoice, then it will be by the ministry of the Spirit of God in His life. So I believe that's how to interpret the text. He is rejoicing by the Spirit. Jesus Christ depended entirely upon the Holy Spirit. And so here is this one that is dependent on the Spirit. He rejoices in or through and by the Holy Spirit. Which, of course, is how we rejoice. So I'm not up here telling you, those of you who may be inclined to not or be joyful or to struggle with joy, I'm not up here telling you, be joyful, do better, you know. I mean, how do you do that? You've had this this, this inherent kind of nature, inclination, manner, the genetics, the environments of your life, your upbringing, those that raised you, the experiences you've gone through, all of that, all of that colors who you are and how you feel at any given moment. And so to tell you to just issue a command to do better, be more joyful, just be more joyful, would be to come short of understanding how it is that the Christian is joyful. We are joyful by the help of the Spirit of God. How does a man incline to anger? And there are many of them. They're inclined. They're inclined. They're more angry than another man. Comparatively, you can see it in them. How does such a man overcome that inclination? Is it not by the help of the Spirit? So it is when it comes to being joyful. How, 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 Christian, can you be joyful? It is by recognition that it is not something you can do yourself It is by recognition also of the sin, of that which is opposite to the joy that the Spirit would produce. That means you have to repent. All right, let's let's get that out of the way. You have to repent of that attitude and frame that is in conflict with what the Spirit produces. If you don't repent, then you're proud. If you're proud, God resists you. But it's when we humble ourselves and we say, no, no, this is wrong. I don't want this. I'm not so identified with this that I must maintain it. This is part that needs renewed. This is part that needs renovated. This is where the Spirit must be, must be encouraged and, and believed upon and rested upon to, to remove this, to, to deal with it. 
So we, we, we repent. And we seek the Spirit's help and we surrender to the Spirit. Christ, perfect surrender to the Spirit in that hour is filled with joy. He rejoices. It's good for us to muse upon the joy of Jesus Christ because He was a man of sorrows. He had much reason to express sorrow. But to ponder over his joy is good for us as well. We are told more about his joy. Many of you will be aware in Acts chapter 2 at the sermon that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. In his sermon, he quotes from several Old Testament passages, and one of those passages is Psalm 16. In Psalm 16, written by David, he makes mention of that when he says, For David speaketh concerning him, right? He sees David as prophet here. So not just reading the psalm and saying this is the experience of David. David speaketh concerning Christ. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. As Peter, quoting Psalm 16, saying that his Lord Jesus, his heart rejoiced, his tongue was glad. Of course, Peter could pay testimony to it, couldn't he? He saw it. He saw it himself. He walked with him. He saw the joy of the Lord Jesus. He saw it expressed against all odds, indications of it. We're not told all those details, but he observed it. And as far as Peter was concerned, Psalm 16 was not contradicting his experience of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Psalm 45 is also applied to our Lord Jesus Christ in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1 verse 9, Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Let me just pause there. Do not miss, do not miss. I'm not about to get into a whole side issue of depression and that which is so commonplace today. And that's a separate subject. And there are many nuances there. But do not miss, do not overlook why it is that the conclusion comes to, therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. In a nation and in a world that increasingly, increasingly loves iniquity and hates righteousness, you should expect more depression. Our Lord Jesus loved righteousness. and hated iniquity. You remember that. You remember that. We stand in Christ complete in Him, and it is an offense for us who take His name to not have the same attitude He possesses towards that which is moral. We are not to make excuses for iniquity. We are not to rename iniquity. We are not to give new titles to iniquity. We are not to downgrade it. We are not to, in any way, cause it to be pliable. What is iniquitous is plainly revealed in the Word of God. Christ hates it. He hates it. He doesn't look at what's going on in the moral decadence of our day and look at it and say, oh, isn't that just a, a shame there? And well, it's a pity that they're like that. He, he hates it. He hates it. 
This is the same God that the prophet says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity. And as the world careers into greater sin, it is very easy for it to have its numbing effect on our conscience, making it difficult for us to hate what Jesus hates. And so as we do not love what He loves and hate what He hates, therefore we are not anointed with the oil of gladness. We don't receive that from God which He received. So Christ, as a man of sorrows, that does not militate against Him as a man of joy. This passage plainly expresses it here. In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit. So this is how He rejoiced. He rejoices in the Spirit. This is how you will rejoice, Christian. You will rejoice by the Spirit. And so it's in your own interests to be a prayerful Christian that seeks for joy from the hand of God, that endeavors to be filled with the Spirit and know the unction of God upon your life for joy, for joy, aside from all the other experiences of the Spirit in our lives. Yes, it it is worthwhile. It is worthwhile each morning praying, Lord, forgive me, I turn from my sin, fill me with your Spirit, that I might be joyful. Joyful. It's, it's your birthright. It's there. It's there. And prayer is the expression of you knowing God is willing to give it. Your lack of prayer in some way testifies as if either God's not willing or you don't need it. But when you fall and you beg God and you cry out for it, you, you see His, His willingness Yes, here you are. Here you are. Joy for you, my child. Yes, Christ, all that he faced, all the animosity, all the grief, the grief of his heart. Because you see that grief in the mind of Paul and wishing himself a curse from Christ for his kinsmen according to the flesh, how much more Jesus Christ who was, who was rejected But he, he maintains joy through it. But secondly, what Jesus rejoiced in, and this is, we just have two main points here tonight, and we'll endeavor to break down this second point a little more. What Jesus rejoiced in, because as we proceed through verse 21, there are a number of things I want us to note here in what he rejoices in. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, so what, what? What is married to the joy? What is he pondering as he, as he prays? What's he praying over? What is upon his heart? First, he rejoiced in the Father's sovereignty. He rejoiced in the Father's sovereignty. Note how it begins, I thank thee, O Father. Yes. Yes, it's good. It's good to have gratitude in our prayers. It is. It is. Sometimes it can be a little rote, you know. And I, I hear it, certainly with my kids. They, they kind of begin their prayers exact same way, and it tends to be like this. Thank thee for this day, you know, and it kind of goes on from there. And it has a certain rope. Now, I'm not totally against rope praying, especially when what's there is meant to be there. But however, without getting into the details of that, there must be gratitude in our prayers. There must be. Jesus expresses that gratitude. He rejoiced in the Father's sovereignty. And a few things to see here. First, the title expresses general sovereignty. The title expresses general sovereignty. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Son communes with the Father. Yes, and He brings us. We are united to Him. We are able to say the same, our Father. Yes. That's what union with Christ brings. Well, here we see the Son praying, O oh, Father, and therefore in Him I can pray the same way. You can pray the same way. You don't, you don't need, I'm not a mediator to you. Christ is your mediator. And through Christ you can say the same. He is Father. He is Father. 
And I can come to him, Lord of heaven and earth. Even before we get to looking at Lord of heaven and earth, prayer itself assumes sovereignty. One writer says, prayer assumes the sovereignty of God. If God is not sovereign, we have no assurance that he is able to answer our prayers. End quote. When I pray, I'm assuming sovereignty. Come before God and I pray, I'm assuming, yes, he is able. He has power. But to be Lord of heaven and earth is an expression of complete sovereignty. Complete sovereignty. He is governing everything. Our confession notes, God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means yet is free to work without, without, above, and against them at his pleasure. All sorts of questions arise in relation to the sovereignty of God. How does that work with the free will of man or man's will or whatever, how it's conceived by various individuals? But in his ordinary province he maketh use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at his pleasure. He is sovereign then. He's not hemmed in. He's not pressed down. He is not limited. In fact, the ultimate conclusion from Scripture, and even, I would suggest, logic, is the absolute, I shouldn't even need to use that word, but, but I put it in there, an adjective to, to further help you understand what we mean by sovereignty, is absolute. It is complete. It is entire. So, so do you understand this before we proceed? Do you pray, and would you pray, language like the Father is Lord of heaven and earth? And understand what that means. Because understanding what it means is almost more important than using the words. Lord of heaven and earth. What do I mean by language like that? What did Christ mean by language like that? Lord of heaven and earth? Is it just a title without substance, without meaning? What what does it reflect? And you could go on for days dealing with the sovereignty of God and what the Scripture teaches. But I was thinking, immediately came to mind, I think I've referred to this on other occasions, but the quote by R.C. Sproul, when... He said, if there is one maverick molecule in all the universe, then God is not sovereign. And if God is not sovereign, He is not God. If there is one maverick molecule, you think of it. Get down to the molecular level. Get down to the tiniest existing things in this universe. And if there's one that is acting of its own accord, God's not sovereign. Never mind all the things you see in all the great events. Even at a molecular level, if something is acting of its own will, of its own volition, somehow beyond the means of God to reach and control, He is not sovereign. When you say Lord of heaven and earth, when Christ says Lord of heaven and earth, it is recognition of a complete, absolute, entire sovereignty over the entire world. There's nothing in the cosmos outside His dominion. Now, men will, men will fight against that. Even individuals that will acknowledge that God has a measure of control in the world, they will struggle with it being entire. And so you have those, like those addressed by Isaiah, Isaiah 45, verse 9 which records for us there, Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. In other words, you know, like when, when that which is under the, the sovereign, the one that's in control, can it question? Can it strive against? Can it contradict the sovereign one? That's to strive against your maker. Hannah understood God's sovereignty. A woman that had been afflicted with barrenness. And she had to understand the sovereignty of God in her barrenness. And she had to rest in it. She had to accept God was entirely sovereign in that experience. While at the same time having this ongoing burden of what she saw in the world around us. But when finally God answers prayer and comes to her and grants her a son, you note in her prayer in 1 Samuel 2, particularly verse 6 and 7, the Lord killeth and maketh alive. He bringeth down to the grave and bringeth up. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. 
He bringeth low and lifteth up. He is in control of everything. Of all the extremities of human experience. He is in control. Did Christ have to meditate on that? Of course, he, he knew, and there wasn't any conflict in his mind. I'm not suggesting that at all. But there was in his humanity a, an understanding and a musing and a, a consistent grappling with in the sense of keeping it there in the forefront of his mind as to the sovereignty of the Father and his purposes in relation to him. We have a very plain statement of God's sovereignty in Acts 4. Verse 27 and following. For of a truth, here they are, they're praying, the church is praying. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed. So there's this pondering over the humanity, this, this recognition that the Son of God was made flesh. That flesh was anointed of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do what they wished. That's how man would write it. But the record given is, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. This is what the 12-year-old Jesus is, is recognizing. It must be about my father's business. That's what he's testifying to, to his parents. The father's business. What's the father's business? To give myself for the sheep. Not, not, I am not under the dominion. I am not under the wicked dominion of men. I am under the dominion of thy hand and thy counsel and whatsoever you have determined before to be done. Lord of heaven and earth, that's the one you pray to. Lord of heaven and earth. And as A.W. Pink rightly said, to the one who delights in the sovereignty of God, that is, they, they get beyond the the questions of justice and rightness. And the curious questions relating to how does it fit with man's will and all the rest of it, to which there are some answers in a measure. But to the one that gets beyond all the questioning of it, surrenders to it, and then, not just surrenders, not just surrenders, but then delights in it. Delights in it. To the one who delights in the sovereignty of God, the clouds not only have a silver lining, but they are silver all through. The darkness only serving to offset the light. The atheist, no matter how hard he tries, cannot find meaning to his existence. The way he lives, in the vast majority of cases, in the vast majority of cases, the way he lives is a public contradiction of what he says he believes. Because he believes there's no God, 
And by believing there's no God, there is no purpose. And if there's no purpose, there's no meaning to anything, anything in our existence. And yet they live assuming meaning in everything they do. Love, and family, and children, education, goals, everything. You mean the whole, every part of human existence. They enter into it just as we do. They're a contradiction. The Christian finds his meaning and understanding, yes, there is God. That's why I'm here, is to bring praise to Him. I submit, in bringing praise to Him, I submit the first thing I must do is recognize His sovereignty. So the title expresses general sovereignty. Lord of heaven and earth. We're thinking of it generally. Sovereign over all things in this world. But the prayer also expresses particular sovereignty. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. There's a particularity here, isn't there? He is thinking about his sovereignty in how he titles the Father, but it goes on to be very specific that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Now, when you're determining the understanding of this text, the first thing that must come to mind is, what does he mean by these things? These things. What, what's he referring to? You go back up, you see him deal with the fact that names are written in heaven. You see him dealing with the fact that uh, all that he dealt with and concerning the 70, so there's an aspect of ministry. But I think at the heart of it really is, is that which is redemptive. The message of redemption. The, the, this is what is revealed. If you go on then to, to look at the following verses, you have further reference to these things in various ways. Verse 23, he turned to him, and he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. So it's, it's, a, it's a way of pointing to all that is being of significance in terms of the ministry of Jesus Christ. What he's teaching, what he's communicating, what they're grasping, and what others are rejecting. When people fail to consider the sovereignty of God, or when they consider it in a limited fashion, often one of the areas where they don't want it to invade is relating to themselves. So God is sovereign, but don't let that sovereignty invade the realm of man's will. We must leave room for the autonomy of man. The ultimate decision of whether someone is a believer or not is up to man, not God. And this is, you have to dig, you must dig. Where is ultimate sovereignty in salvation? I, I, sometimes I read things, I do, I read things, and it seems like people are jumping through hoops in every way they can, to avoid stating that the final, the, the determining factor in salvation is God. It's like they want to jump through every hoop possible to not come to that conclusion. To affirm the sovereignty of God without coming down to that realization. But there's no avoiding it across Scripture, and there's no avoiding it here. He is praying to the sovereign that he has hid these things, the things that the disciples were privy to, the things that were transforming their lives. He has hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. What does he mean by the wise and prudent? Are we to be wise? Yes, absolutely. The entire book of Proverbs is calling you to wisdom. So we are meant to be wise. Now we're being told that, he, that the Father hides, hides us from the wise. But we are not to understand it in that way. We're not to understand it as the way 
Proverbs uses the word in that sense that there are wise men. But even in relation to Proverbs, when properly understood, it's not just some mere ability of the mind. Wisdom begins. How does it begin? The fear of God. And so there's a submission. There is a resignation. There is a humble spirit that must be evident before there ever can be true wisdom. Again, to quote it, God resisteth the proud, he giveth grace to the humble. And one of those graces is wisdom. And it begins with Christ, leaning on Christ, trusting in Christ. But the kind of idea that's in mind here, the hidden, hiding these things from the wise and prudent, are those that imagine themselves wise, wiser than God, not needing the message that is being proclaimed by Jesus Christ and by the seventy and by the twelve. They imagine they, they have it all figured out. They are the Pharisees that reject. They are the scribes that don't want to submit to it. They are the, the other leaders and maybe even among the common people, those that, that imagine themselves to, to be wise. I think understanding the real sense of what's going on here is actually going on then to see the ones that the truth is revealed to. They are babes. They are babes. They, they are in infancy. They are, they are described in that way. So what comes to mind when you think of a babe? When you think of some, someone that's small, you think immediately of dependence, don't you? There's a recognition that they can't survive by themselves. They're not trusting in themselves. They're not looking to themselves. They're utterly, utterly dependent upon another. They're not even a tiny little bit dependent upon themselves. Not in the even remotest fashion. Now the quickly they get up and you begin to see them imagining that they can do things independently. And part of our instruction of our children is to help them understand that there are certain limitations that uh, they can sometimes be slow to realize. They are babes. They are dependent. Of course, as they grow older, as we all are far too well aware, it's almost you know, a joke really to suggest that or to talk about the teenagers getting to that point where they imagine themselves wiser than their parents. I mean, it's almost like inevitable. It shouldn't be. It should not be. It shouldn't. I'm not encouraging it. And parents don't live with it. <laughs> Make sure they're aware and endeavor that they understand that they are to honor you. But we go through, we go through this period. We imagine we're wiser than our parents. And that's the sense here, that God reveals, God reveals His truth to those who know they're dependent upon Him and His revelation. They don't have it all figured out. They don't have it all together. They're not leaning upon their own understanding. In all their ways, they're acknowledging Him. They're looking to Him. They're depending upon Him. And so God is said to hide the truth from those that imagine themselves to not be in need of it. For those that question it. We could go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, maybe just go there. Uh, I, I don't want to. My, the danger I have is assuming that you're aware of these passages when there may be some of you here that are not. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you have this this. Illustrated here, wisdom used in this, this negative way, this way that does not impress God. First Corinthians 1, we'll take time to read from verse 22. For the Jews require a sign, right? Shows a sign, not going to believe until he shows a sign. doesn't matter that there are all these miracles that had been put before them. They just keep asking for more signs. They don't really want a sign, that's the thing. They don't like the conclusion. They want another sign so they can find fault with it. That's their hope. They're not really interested. It's like the people who say they read the Bible and they're, they're, they're curious about the truth. But the only reason they read the Bible is to find something that they think is contradictory. Of course, then they read it and then they come back to you and say, I found a contradiction. And then you explain it to them and show it's not a contradiction. They don't immediately say, oh, well, now I'll believe. No, they go back looking for another one because they're not interested. 
They are not interested. Well, that's what the Jews were like. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. This is the wisdom that Christ has in mind. Perhaps this, that look 10 is what Paul has in mind as he elaborates and builds upon his own experience and that which was testified to in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are hidden. They're hidden. But there's some that are called. And to them, these things are revealed. They're revealed. God is sovereign in revealing these things. If God does not reveal them, they will not know them. What, what is the response to that? What, what is the right response to that? I know the possible response. It is either A, anger. How dare he? It's unjust. Or B, it can't mean that. It can't mean that. But both of those responses are wrong. The right response is, he is absolutely sovereign. He alone can reveal the truth. The only response to that is to fall down and beg for mercy. It's beg for mercy. That's it. It's the frightening reality. It's outside my power. I can't do anything. I cannot do it. I can't make me understand it. I can't reveal it to myself. I can't twist his arm. I can't in any way. He is entirely in control. And he's entirely in control. The only thing, the only thing you may argue, what's the benefit in that? He still may ignore it. He may. That's the most frightening thing. That you could beg in mercy, in some expression of mercy, and God still will not condescend. I believe he does, and I believe he's indicated clearly in his word that to those, to those who con- to those who fall and cry out for mercy, he does, he does. He has made covenant assurances that that is the case. He has reassured sinners all the time that if they confess their sins, he is faithful and just. That is, he can be depended upon, and it's the right thing for him to do to forgive you your sins. By the shedding of Christ's blood, there's a way for sinners. But it is entirely outside of your control. And you are to beg for mercy. It's like, it's, like the, it's like the beggars who saw Jesus who only had the power to give them sight. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. Yes, that's, that's, that's where the sinner should be. The unregenerate, the, you unsaved individual here tonight, you without Christ, that's where you need to get. You, you get before the living God, Lord of heaven and earth, who alone can reveal truth, and you beg for mercy. The prayer also expresses moral sovereignty. It expresses moral sovereignty. For so it seemed good. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. I, I kind of missed this initially when I was reading over this, but I, I, I was musing over it again, I thought, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. So it seemed good in thy sight. God determines what is good. What happened in Genesis 1? Creating of the world, all things, he said is good. He didn't have a committee to decide whether it was good. He didn't ask for your input to see whether it was good. He says, it is good. It is good. 
Right through Scripture, God declares what is good. He has moral sovereignty. He's entirely control. He has he is taught and maintains an absolute position of authority in relation to what is good and what is not. And Jesus reflects on this. Him, the Father, only revealing and hiding. Him, controlling. In this way, who understands and who does not? The world, the world arises and says it's unjust, it's not fair, it's not right. Jesus says, no, it is good. It's good in thy sight. Therefore, it is good. Yes. Now, you may question it. You may question his law or the workings of God. You may question it, you may hate it, you may reject it, but it stands regardless. I see this. I see, I see, I see it in believers sometimes. His word states something. They're struggling with something in their mind. Often they already kind of know. They already kind of know. It doesn't have the benediction of heaven. But they get into this kind of twisted way of thinking where they begin to try and find ways of justifying it. One of which, of course, is to go to people who will then turn to them and say, yeah, I know someone else who did that. It's perfectly okay. I don't see any problem with it. <laughs> as, if, as if they're the ones we go to to figure out whether something's right and wrong. If you're not opening Scripture, how can you know what's right and wrong? What is good and what is not? And so they get to this point and they justify it. And so that young girl, she comes to me and she tells me I've gotten engaged to such and such a young man and we end up having a discussion about the young man and it becomes clear he's not saved. And she professes to be a believer. And so I have this conversation. There's a problem here. It's an unequal yoke. You profess to love Christ, they do not. This isn't going to work. Oh, but I have known people for whom it has worked before. I have known, I talked to someone about that. They also married, they were a believer, and they married someone who was an unbeliever, and God saved them after they were married. And all sorts of justification for it. The fact that God... For one thief shows mercy does not mean we can assume both thieves get saved. They don't. They don't. To make an assumption that in one case, because God has been very merciful, that he will then also be obligated to be merciful to you is a very poor assumption to make. A flawed one. The only thing you know is the Word of God. You come back to the Scriptures and you submit and you, you let the love, the embers of your love fade. And let the embers of your love for Christ inflame. And you say, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight to make these boundaries, to create these barriers, to express your will in this way, so it seemed good in thy sight, it is good also in mine. So we have seen that Christ rejoiced in the Father's sovereignty. But also, very quickly, he rejoiced in his own sovereignty. He rejoiced in his own sovereignty. Verse 22. All things are delivered to me of my Father. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. All things are delivered to me of my Father. There's so much that can be said here. I'm almost tempted to just stop. Maybe I should. Maybe that's what I should do. I'll just stop at verse 21. We'll come back. Let's, just, let's then just muse on it. What we've considered tonight. 
You have to get to the point where you rejoice in everything that brings joy to Jesus Christ. So righteousness brings him joy. Iniquity he hates. We need to get to that point. Every Christian here is in a constant battle to understand the mind of God in terms of right and wrong and to rejoice in it even whenever the entire world says that this which was once taboo is now acceptable. Yea, it is to be commended. When they're saying that, we cannot. We cannot in any way imbibe the same mentality. We must hold the course not for conservatism. God forbid we're conserving American, American ideology or ethics or whatever. What? Really? Is that all it is? No, we have a higher, we have far higher calling. Far higher. I need to rejoice in everything that Jesus rejoiced in. Sometimes that will actually cut against the grain of some very American things and British and all the rest of it. It will. But I will imbibe it because though I was taught to think this way and I had it put before me, yet I will see from His Word that this is contradictory. So I'm always wanting to rejoice in what Jesus rejoices in. So I will love righteousness and hate iniquity. Though the world, though the entire world endeavor to prevail against my convictions and get me to submit to their understanding, I will not. I will not. Though I be hated by all my peers, I will stand hated by men and loved by God. And I will be exceedingly humble about the manner in which I go about my business because I live before the Lord of heaven and earth. And at any given moment, He may hide. He may hide from me the very thing I need to understand. And I need to have Him reveal it. And who does He reveal it to? He reveals it to babes. To babes. Christian, never outgrow that that dependency that is reflected in that word babes. We're not saying, like there's other passages that speak of needing to grow into a perfect man, needing to mature. Hebrews 6, other passages that deal with growing and maturing and leaving the childish things and so on and so forth. There are all those passages. They're not, they're not tied into the same thing as here. In fact, part of your maturity comes by maintaining an absolute dependence on God always. That without Him you can do nothing. And so you're a babe. Every morning, every morning, I'm powerless, Lord. Help me. You know, I'll tell you, this, this preacher, you pray anything for me, you pray that he maintains that kind of babe-like spirit as he prepares and preaches the Word every Lord's day. An awful thing, an awful thing of that seminary ever gets to the point where the young men come out and imagine, because we've done these years read these books, trained in this material, tested on it, stood before the presbytery, approved by all of that. Now, now we've graduated. We have all the skills. We can be the pastor and the preacher and so on, whatever. We can do it all. No, you can't. You cannot. Oh, you cannot. Ever. You can't. And as soon as you begin to think it, he is going to. Oh, Lord, make it be. Bring us low. Bring us very low. We will learn afresh. We're babes. We, we cannot depend on ourselves at all. Parents, remember that. No amount of book reading about parenting will give you all the slam dunk material you need to raise a godly seed. Part of what you must learn in raising children to God is you can't do it. Right here is telling you. You can read all the books and do everything, but He will either reveal Himself or he will hide himself. That means on their behalf, you're like Job. What was Job doing? He was offering sacrifices to God for his children. That's why he's depending on God. He is maintaining this, this dependency on God. Only God can do it. Only God can save them and keep them. So it is for those of you who are 
Without Christ, you cannot save yourself. You will not, you will not be the one who determines when and how you're saved. The only call that goes out to you and was issued this morning, now is the accepted time, now is the day of salvation. You fall on mercy now. You fall on your knees and you cry out for mercy until, until the blessed testament of the Spirit of God comes to your heart and confirms you're a child of God. As he will, he will. He'll, he'll lift that heavy load. He'll unburden. He'll unburden that heart of sin. And he will give the assurances that if you call unto him, he will answer. That if you seek forgiveness, he will grant it. He is always, always giving, reassuring Those that come to him, he will never cast out. May the Lord bless his word. Let's bow together in prayer. If you're here tonight and you're troubled in soul, whatever may be causing that troubling, we're here as a servant of Christ to help you. Maybe you just need someone to pray with you and for you. Please don't hesitate to let us know. We're glad to sit with you and pray with you. If the Spirit is striving in your heart, don't get up and leave and go downstairs and forget what God is doing in your life. Everyone else may move downstairs. You sit where you are or you find a quiet place and you get alone with God until you find resolution to the problem you're facing. Lord, we pray that Thou wilt bless Thy Word. We thank Thee that Jesus not only was a man of sorrows, but He was a man of joy. We're thankful in this passage that we see Him rejoicing in and through the Holy Ghost. We pray that Thou wilt help us also to do the same. He, at a turning point of His own ministry, about to head towards Jerusalem and go that way, though in a very kind of meandering fashion, getting there eventually, yet He was, that was on, in His mind, that was what was right at the forefront of His thought. And yet He rejoiced that hour in spirit. Help us then to rejoice in the hour of our trial. Give us grace to be like Christ. Every way that we see Him revealed in Thy Word. Bless the Word to those that are yet in their sin, that are filled with unbelief, God of mercy. Help them to cry out for mercy. Reveal Thy Son in them and to them, that they may be saved. Bless the food provided. Go with us downstairs. Grant the sweetness of thy presence in our fellowship. Maybe go to our homes encouraged by the goodness and mercy of the Lord and keep us close to thee this week as we endeavor to fulfill our duties and our callings in this life. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.